I think when you do a show like this, it's about time that the young people who may be viewing this thing realize that there's a lot more to music than just uh, playing one chord or two He's chords and, and uh, going out and trying to make money. Telling you, bro, what's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting more Peggy-O's? Shane Terrio here. Thanks for tuning in, Riff Raff. How's everybody doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Through this coronavirus hiatus, if you're listening 50 years from now, look it up on whatever technology you have available now and see what we're going through at this point. It's pretty crazy. Been productive, though. I'm hoping that you're, you've been productive, too, maybe doing something you haven't been putting off for a while. Anyway, I have a great guest I'll tell you about in a sec. I wanted to give a shout-out to, uh, there's, a, there's more than a few people, but um, Rex Singleton, a couple of listeners that made some uh, little donations through my PayPal. It does cost money to, to uh, operate this site and post riffraff, and um, I'm not trying to make money off of it, but if you happen to feel so inclined want to make a little contribution to the cause it helps me make episodes on a more timely basis my uh the way that to do that would be paypal.me slash funky guitar paypal.me slash funky guitar or just buy some music we're listening to a track called little hat from my record grease factor check out buy some of g's music buy some you know people on my podcast music it all helps, and we musicians are a generous bunch. Today's guest is Mr. G.E. Smith. How cool is it when you get to interview not only a legendary guitar player like G.E., but somebody who actually stood in, you know, I'm standing in his shoes because he was the 
guitar player in the heyday. When I say heyday, I mean the 80s hits, mega hits that Daryl, Paul, and John Oates had. G played on all that stuff. Private Eyes, Kisses on My List. I mean, Man Eater, all the famous songs you know. G was right there. And believe me, I asked him a lot of questions that I wanted to find out some things about. But I knew of G growing up as a kid in the 80s and watching Saturday Night Live and waiting every weekend to see what cool guitars he would have or what guest he would have, Eddie Van Halen or Eric Clapton or somebody sitting in. That was the heyday of late night TV, if you ask me. Um, but anyway, I'm thrilled to have G on as a guest. A lot of great stories. Had to do this one Skype, which you know is not my favorite way to do this. I would have much preferred to sit with G with guitars in hand. And, but it, it came out pretty great, and G dropped some amazing stories on here. I feel like we could have talked for another couple of hours. So uh, G's got a new album coming out with Leroy Bell, and a great singer. They just partnered together. There's a few singles out right now on, on internet. One's called America. Let the Sun Shine In. There's one called Black is the Color. There's three out right now. But the record is called Stony Hill. Should be out next month, August. Check it out. Here we go. Hope you enjoy this one. Much better. Wow. Yeah, it's better. You, you I can see you better and hear you better, too. Modern technology. There we go. Yeah. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> Due to coronavirus and uh, logistic uh, limitations, I'm virtually interviewing the legendary G. Smith, and I'm thrilled that you could join me on Riff Raff. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, G. So through the marvels of modern technology, here we go. Here uh, we are. Yeah, Good man. Yeah. Man, thank you, G, for doing this. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I've you know been wanting to meet you anyway. You know, I feel like I've know so much about you man i hear all these great stories <laughs> yeah oh yeah there's definitely some stories how long have you been playing with daryl and john seven years seven years okay that's that's how long i was there i, I did um 79 to 85 so i was there six years yeah you were the you were the, the heyday man the big time years yeah. it was funny when i started with them uh I'm sure you know their career story. You know, they had had like Sarah Smile and Rich Girl in the middle of the 70s. And then they got into that thing with uh, uh, Todd Rundgren and they did that along the Red Ledge record, which wasn't their biggest record. Right. You know, right. Pro probably their like least successful record. And I think that they had spent a lot of the money that they had made on a pre production for this huge tour that they planned and. They, you know, there was a lot of production on the album. It was an expensive album to make, I think. So they were kind of like broke, you know. When it, when I came along, I was getting two hundred dollars a week wow. for a hundred dollars to play the guitar and a hundred dollars to drive one of the station wagons. <laughs> and we were playing bars. Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know we were playing like joints, you know, wow. all over the country. But, you know, we would, like, fly into a place, get a couple of rented station wagons, load the gear in, and off we'd go. And we did that for several months, and then things 
picked up, you know, and, right. and, it, and it went up to Learjets and limos and stayed there the rest of the time and just got bigger and bigger. Yeah, you know? for sure, man. Yeah. It, I saw your interview. Uh, you were talking about Daryl the first time you met him. It was something about shoes or a jacket or so. Is that true? <laughs> uh, no, actually, the first time I met him, uh, a guy named Eddie Zine, who had played drums with them in the middle 70s. Then I worked with Eddie uh, uh, in 78. We did a record and a, and a tour with a group called Desmond Child and Rouge. And Desmond's a great songwriter. Yeah. Rouge, these three girls, these great singers. And so I got to be friendly with them. And so Eddie, at some point in the summer of 79... Maybe it was 78. I don't know. 78 or 79. Eddie goes by the studio where Daryl and John are making a record to say hello. He's not playing with the band anymore, but he goes by to say hello. And then he comes to me and he says, hey, man, they they need a guitar player. You know, they've been using some different session guys and stuff, but it's not working out. You know, they so I'll take you by. So then we go by and I meet them and talk to them and uh I go the next day to Daryl's apartment and I come in and we start talking and well, we're Pennsylvania guys. We're all three of us Pennsylvania guys. Right, you know? right. And then uh, I was wearing something at the time, you know, uh, Daryl said, that's cool, shoes or a shirt or something, you know. And I said, yeah, well, man, you always wear great clothes. We start talking about clothes. I never took my guitar out of the case. <laughs> we just talked. And then he said, okay, I come to the studio tonight. And that was it. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's a vibe thing. I, I get it. I, I understand him now, the way he picks up on vibe. And he knew that you would fit. Yeah. 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 Uh, I got to meet Eddie Zine. I know he was pretty tight with Charlie DeChant. You know, yeah. 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 He just had a big birthday. He sure did. I saw your, uh, yeah, we all gave him a shout out on video. Yeah. yeah. His video. Yeah. You got any, I mean, you know, for instance, I've, I've checked out some of the old Hollow Notes stuff, like, uh, I say old because it was early on, but the hot, the heyday of like, uh, what was that concert? The July 4th concert where everybody's like helicopter. It's on YouTube and man, you're doing That's, all this cool stuff. Like you did the Liberty, Park. Liberty Park. What do you yeah. remember about that day? Cause that just seems like that, that's just the ultimate. It was, it was amazing. Um, that summer, uh, it was like live aid, farm aid, you know, and we did all those things. And like at Live Aid, we we kind of wound up being the house band, you know, backed up uh, Mick Jagger and Tina Turner, uh, some other folks. Was uh, that I you a, and, and that was you and T-Bone, of course. Was was that Mickey, Mickey Curry, too? Yeah, Mickey. That was the, that was the section. Yeah. Sure. And I think Daryl played. Um, I have a great picture of Daryl, Mick Jagger, Tina Turner, John, and myself wow. standing around a piano. Wow. Big the Yamaha, you know, big Yamaha wow. uh, uh, electric piano from from those times. Uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. But that Liberty State Park uh, thing, they had done some kind of work, like like refurbished the Statue of Liberty in the harbor there. And so it was about that. So, yeah, they helicoptered us from the city over to the island where the park was going to be. 
And on the way, they like took us through like some of the streets in the city, like low, you know, like yeah. lower than buildings. The police, you know, wow. police flying with the cops is the best. We go over, and then we went to the island, and they actually took us up into the Statue of Liberty, and let us go up in the where people don't get to go, like up yeah. in the torch, you know, yeah. these old steps going up there. Wow, amazing! That was cool and then the concert was amazing you know a lot of people were exciting and at that point we had been on the road with that band for four years pretty much what we used to do we'd uh make a record in usually at electric lady as it was working out for about two and a half three months we take a month off then we go back out on the road mm-hmm. and we would it took nine months to do what they called the world, you know, go around. Uh, Daryl and John were huge in Japan. And after about like maybe 82, when, when they had gotten really, really big and MTV had come on in 81 and they were all ready for MTV. When it came on, they had like seven videos in the can ready to go. Wow. You know? Yeah. So, so they were really smart. You know, Tommy Latola, who was managing them at the time, right, hooked up with those people at MTV, and he knew it was coming. And and Daryl and John were right on it. You know, and they got the best people to direct and do things. So, so they were really ready for that period. And great songs. Oh yeah, absolutely, man. It starts right, Shane. It starts absolutely. with absolutely. I I remember a couple months into the gig. You know, I sit with Daryl sometimes and we'll go through the set. And um, I was checking out some some older clips. And I saw it might have actually been from that um, Bicentennial concert, Did It In A Minute, which was always one of my favorite Hall & Oates songs. And the version you did, the guitar parts are different than on the record, man. I copped all your shit. <laughs> the little <laughs> on the verses. You know, such a killer thing. And Daryl was like, I said, man, I always love that song, you know. And Daryl said, we haven't done it in a long time. So I found a version, <clears throat> you're on guitar, killing it, I think, with a Marshall stack. Daryl has a, is it a, it's a Gibson uh, uh, tenor guitar. I guess that's how he started playing. Four-string stuff, because, yeah. you know, playing mandolin and mandola. Yeah, but what, man, great songs, great parts. I mean, just killer, man. I, as a matter of fact, I have, I, I don't want to talk too much. I want you to talk, but maybe you'll remember some of this stuff. I have three multi-track all the sessions of no can do um man eater kisses on yeah. my list transferred from two inch which i guess they were at uh hit factory i had to do some some things for Dow to edit some things and we needed the masters but you pull them up everything at zero no panning no effects no nothing it sounds like a freaking hit record it's unbelievable and i solo up all the parts all your shit and all of john it's just engineering skills songwriting skills tones everything man well haven't you always found when you're in the studio if it's a great song and there's a great singer singing it it makes it so easy to play nice parts Mm -hmm. just come up with stuff you know Mm -hmm. i always played everything not just with daryl and john but everything i've ever done i listen to the singer and i find the melody and i use the notes from the melody a, it always works with the song, and B, the singer kind of subconsciously goes, "Oh yeah, that's right. That's what I'm singing." You know, so it, it just works. Right. It it, it works. Um, 
Yeah, but they, they they had such great songs. It's funny. In my memory, and this could be this could be like a partial memory, you know how things you remember from a long time ago, and sure. it's kind of true, but maybe it's not like I remember Maneater. I remember John playing it as a it was like a bossa nova. The woe <laughs> becomes part, you know? Like Oh yeah, that sounds like something he would yeah. do. Oh, she'll chew you up. Whoa, whoa, here she comes. Playing it on the piano. And Daryl listening to it and, and talking about it. And uh, then we go away. And the next day, Daryl comes in and he's got that verse and he's got the beat now, you know? Yeah. And and uh, me and T-Bone and Mickey had had suggested the you know the motown feel for it and and daryl just jumped on that and had that great lift up into the verse you know up into the major for the verse yeah um just good songs good songwriting good songs and singing can't be absolutely man what it's still the best what let me ask you about a couple of quote deep cuts that i that i like and we've done on daryl's show first one's go solo Oh yeah, go solo. I love that song. Great song. Great song. Um great guitar solo, by the way. Thank you. I don't even remember. Um Daryl, I always thought that that was a very sincere song from him. You know? Yeah. Like I mean, he's a professional, right? So he could sit down with somebody and 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 write a song. He could sit down by himself and write a song almost to order. But I always thought that that one he really meant it. Man, that song has some cool chord changes. Those uh, yeah. really hip chord changes. Uh, but the guitar solo, I copped your solo because we did it on Daryl's show with Gavin DeGraw. I mean, I copped the the gist of it, and uh, really great, man. I mean, I love just, that. It's one I of my favorites. I'm just playing blues on on almost all the songs where I play solos. I'm just playing blues, you know. Yeah. A well, funny one is um, "Private Eyes." You know that that intro. Sure. That. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The leaves fell from the trees. September. It's like <laughs> standard, you know. Wow. Um, and I remember Matola cracking up when I played that. Uh, that melody. That guitar I mean, solo that on that tune is, you know? is great, man. It's it's like. It's, you know, you, it's, it's, what's the word? Sacrosanct. Like you don't want to, you can't mess it up because everybody in the audience is singing it. They know that solo, you know, it's like Stairway to Heaven or some shit. So, I think when I was playing that solo that like I, I started playing it and then Daryl was singing me some notes, if I remember correct. Mm-hmm. Cause it's very melodic. Yeah. It's a vocal kind of a solo. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. But again, it's such a great song. You could play solos all day long. I know. I know. They're all going to sound good. Let me throw another oddball at you. What about Delayed Reaction? Remember that song? Delayed Reaction. Yeah. That's got some quirky bar. Five, four, six, four. Yep. Yep. I remember that 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 was really fun to record. I remember just being an electric lady recording that. Uh, Just, you know. Fun. I had a great time with those guys. You know, we were yeah. we were young, you yeah. know, at the time. We were all in our 
20s and stuff when I was around. And uh, I was such a such a, a rube, you know, when I first joined them. I, I hadn't been around much, you know. I had I had done some things, but hadn't really traveled a whole lot. And uh, it was a great education, you know, being yeah. with them a physical education and a, and a sociological education, you know, to really get out and see the United States before the old weird America, as they call it, before it was gone. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, because we, I joined them before MTV and it was still regional. When you'd go to, to the South, you're in Tennessee, right? No, I live in New Orleans. I just have a Tennessee cell. Okay, yeah. well, down south. When when you'd go to New Orleans or you'd go to, to to Tennessee or to Atlanta or somewhere, it was different than being up here in New York or Pennsylvania where I came from, you know? It was really different. Once MTV came on in 81, within, I'd say, six to nine months, the regionalism started to go away. People started... The kids, especially, that were coming to the shows started dressing the same. They started trying to lose their accents. And then gradually, through the early 80s, stuff started going away. Like, like there used to be diners. Yeah. Like, there was a diner in Union, Tennessee, I remember, that we loved. It was gone. You know? Yeah. Stuff started to disappear. And T-Bone used to just be so sad about things like that, you know? Uh, so yeah, we, we really saw the country change big time. Even Japan from the first time we went to Japan where it was really foreign and, and different, you know, till by like 83, you know, we'd go every year by, by 83, it it was like Tokyo at least was like being in New York city, you know? So it, it was a great time to, 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 I was really lucky to be there for that tremendous ascendancy that they did, those hits. I mean, like Maneater, uh, it, it was an inescapable song. Wherever we went in the world, it was playing on the taxi radio. It was playing in the supermarket when you went to get something to take back to the room, you know? Huge, giant records. Wow, what an amazing place to be in your 20s, man. That's uh, yeah. It, the last time I actually saw Daryl, and John was in February because of all this coronavirus. We did uh, Madison Square Garden, and it was sold out. People still go because of those songs. Yeah, of course. You know, those songs, man. It, it's the power of uh, those songs. But um, those mean a lot to people. You know, people that that were young then when those records were out. You know. Yeah, they want to feel a little of that uh, nostalgia, but plus they're great songs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, we could just talk a whole episode about that, but I, you've done so many other things. I don't want to keep uh, harping on that. But okay, really- I, I, mean, I, I feel like um, I uh, I owe a lot to, to Daryl and John. You know, uh, I, I learned a lot. I always felt that, like, I mean, I got to play some nice stuff on the records. You know, uh, I think my favorite thing that I ever played on any of their records is is that intro to every time you go away oh yeah you know yeah uh you know that those that memphis memphis style yeah that uh yeah reggie young and all that stuff Uh uh-huh 
It's a perfect Telecaster song, and I'm a Telecaster guy. Used the neck pickup, really got that, like, uh, Teeny Hodges, you know, the guy that played on the Al Green records. That's who I was thinking about when, when I, I played that. Yeah, so much. And then when uh, when we did that Apollo concert uptown, the Apollo Theater, because uh, they had fixed up the Apollo and they were reopening it, and David Ruffin and Eddie Kendrick were, were in the band at that point, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. That's a, oh, it is amazing. I remember in, that day, we were all up in the dressing room in the afternoon, and uh, David and Eddie were just kind of like, warming up their voices and they started singing this gospel song oh mary don't you weep and me and t-bone came in with the other two harmonies and they looked at us like wait a minute how do you guys know that song and we're like come on man shirley caesar in the caravans yeah, oh, martha don't you moan yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know that's the greatest song um so stuff like that you know unbeatable just a little side note because i'm sort of curious but what amps were you using on with was that were there marshals or on the records were you using other amps or i'm always curious oh, I'm using marshals on the records if you see me using marshals it's because they're rented okay that was that would be like because i didn't i couldn't bring my fenders for whatever reason you know no i'm a fender amp guy yeah i thought so yeah but i've seen all those videos with john and daryl yep Yep. Yeah, that's all. That's it's, The Marshalls were rented, and sometimes, like in England or Germany, we'd rent AC-30s, you know. But that was... Uh, I remember that on one tour, we had... Uh, we were out somewhere in the world, and John kept saying, man, you know, the Marshalls, yeah, they, they're okay, but it's not the good sound. So we had my basements sent out from the city. And at the end of that tour, we ended in, in, in Brussels, in Belgium, and the gear got shipped back, and somebody stole my uh, oh. amp. The, I had a big you know, road case with all the amp heads in it, oh, two, old, two old small box Marshall 50s, two like 61 basement heads. You know, oh, God. Back then, you could still get all that stuff, so I got more basements, you know, but yeah. It was uh, a thing that we that we used to do. We kind of got like, uh, you know, that um, the random possibilities cards. Yeah, Brian Eno and the, the Brian Eno thing. Yeah. So we had those in the studio. Daryl, I think, had brought them in at Electric Lady. And so I loved that. I always loved the randomness idea uh -huh. anyway, you know, in, in, in life. 
So a thing that we would do, if it was time for me to play a solo, like the solo on Family Man, we did this. We set up all my amps and all my guitars in the studio, just put them up like in a line. And then we like ordered a pizza or ordered Chinese <laughs> food or something. And the delivery guy, I would take him out in the studio and he would pick a guitar and an amp. That's what I would use for the solo. And this is what I did on Family Man. That's what I've used for the solo. And I wouldn't touch the settings on the amp. Whatever the amp was at, that's what I played. Force limitations. Yeah. And it always worked. It always sounded good. It was always a tone that worked. I did that two or three times. But I noted that Family Man, that whatever it is, that, you know, that bang, 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 bang. And Solo is, he, he picked uh, an SG and a... And a the delivery man. <laughs> the delivery man picked. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Pizza. What a story, man. It's great. Really great. I had no idea. That's really yep. cool. I'll tell you, uh, uh, I was thinking about this this morning, uh, uh, a real guitar geek thing. You know how guys take the covers off their humbuckers? Yeah. Oh? Yeah. It, it does change the sound. It gives uh -huh. you this like wider kind of thing. So the first, the oldest picture that I've ever been able to find is Clapton. April of 65 playing in John Mayall's band and he's got the Les Paul and he's got the covers off, right? So I was doing some work with, with, with Eric one time and we, we were waiting, you know, as they say, most of show business, 90% is waiting. Mm -hmm. So we're in one of those like waiting for an hour or something to get something set up so we could play. And I said, man, could I ask you some like real guitar geek questions? And he laughed. He said, yeah, go ahead, man. It was just me and him. And I said, I got this picture of you with Mayall in April of 65, and you got the covers off your humbuckers. And he really thought about it. I could see. He really thought about it. He said, well, now they're in London, right? Down south right. of England. Right. He goes, well, all the bands up north were doing that. I went, the bands up north? Who are you talking about? Freddie and the Dreamers? You know, the Beatles? They weren't right. taking the covers right. off their humbuckers. So... I don't know exactly what he meant, but that has always just astounded me that either somebody told him to do that or he did it. But that's the, he's the first one I ever saw. Wow. That's a, yeah. You never know, man. Some of that oh. stuff just comes from, there's a tune called Shadooky Doo. Maybe you heard it. Oh, yeah. Shadooky Doo. I love you. John Hammond and Dr. John. Well, that's on, that's on that tree. tree what is that called? Uh, that's that. On that record uh, they did in the seventies, but it's an old yeah. New Orleans tune it's from fifties. Yeah. yeah, the original. That's what I, what yeah, was that record? well, the original one from the fifties. The guitar solo sounds so ratty and messed up, you know. And I asked Art Neville about it. He goes, "Man, the, the guitar player on the session, the amp broke, and it was like kind of, you know, just sounded crappy, and they just left it." And I said, "Really? Wow, listen to that. I mean, it sounds like the shittiest fuzz tone hip." Yep hip you know but you're yeah. talking like probably 57 56 and i asked mac about it and mac he said the exact same story he goes and then you know mac he goes that was the first guitar solo with extortion that was ever extortion. recorded <laughs> buddy guy would always say that he'd say man i got some extortion on my amp tonight <laughs> 
or uh, what was that? Uh, everything I do gonna be funky, you know. Gonna be funky from now on. I asked Art Neville. Art was on the session. I asked him. He goes, "Yeah, well, the engineer was from North Louisiana, and he talked like he had a little accent from up North Louisiana, and and um and they told Alan Tuesday, and he said, "Man, this this cat talks hip. You should just leave it on the record." And that's how it ended up on there. So oh, that's great. So that's why I do this podcast, G, because your stories, man. The who's stories. ever gonna hear that shit? Who's going to know, like, you know, all the stuff you just said? I mean, some of it you've probably said in interviews before, but all that little inside stuff, man, it's just gold. Right. You know? Yeah. Man, I'll tell you something about, like, I've really, really researched this about distortion on guitar players playing with distortion, right? Yeah. So the one of the earliest ones that got recorded, at least, there was a guy before Hubert Sumlin in Howlin' Wolf's band. I think his name is Wilbur Smith. His name was Smith. There's records that they did at Sun, and even before that, like really early 50s, 52, 53, his amp is totally distorted, and it's it's insane. I mean, it's like call the police time, you know. <laughs> but the but the earliest one I found, you know, Charlie Christian, right? Yeah, sure. Charlie Christian, he was the first guy to go, oh, electric guitar. Look what you can do, you know? He was the first one. I mean, Les Paul was trying to do it. Different guys were trying to do it. But Charlie was the first one to really take an electric guitar and, and wail, Oh yeah, you know? sure. So he's on the Benny Goodman recordings and stuff, you know, that's uh, a smooth one. So he would make those re records. Then they would go to this place called Minton's, M-I-N-T-O-N-S, a club, and they would jam. Krupa, Charlie, different guys, you know. So there's this tape. Thank God somebody was up there taping some of this stuff. And at one point they finish a song, and you hear who I think is Krupa say to him, hey, Charlie, you call one. And he goes, okay, man, be flat. One, two, boom. wow, like 1941. Wow, one he P90, hits. one whatever that was. It was a P90, I guess. Huh? Before, so he must at some point realize if, if I hold some of these notes, it'll just keep going like a horn player. But he goes, one, two, boom. oh, yeah, so people, <laughs> people were doing amazing. Those are great stories, man. Those are really great. Um, you, you seem like your career, the, the the path it took, it seemed like you timed it. Well, maybe it was just pure luck. Pure luck, not that talent was luck. I just mean the timing of you falling into SNL and doing all this stuff while you were working with John and Daryl. I mean, it seemed like it just happened. Because forgive me if I'm wrong, but I, I think 
you took the the SNL gig and they were taking time off or something like yeah. that? Yeah. By, when does by, that ever happen? <laughs> by the summer of 85, we had literally been on the road or in the studio for almost six years. You know, like they worked. When when we weren't in the studio, like I said, it's a couple weeks off and we'd be back in the bus and boom, gone. Uh, or on an airplane going overseas somewhere. And so by July of 85, when we did Live Aid and that Liberty Park concert and Farm Aid and all that stuff, by that summer of 85, they were tired. And they were, they'd made some money. You know, they'd had all those giant hits now for five years. And uh, they said, we're going to take some time off. So fine. And then as it happened, Lauren Michaels was returning to Saturday Night Live. He had been there from the beginning of the show, 75 to 80. Then he left. Now he's returning to the show. The original musical director on the show was Howard Shore. So Lauren just said, okay, Howard, we're going back. And Howard said, uh, I can't go back. I'm doing film scores now. You know, I'm doing... Mm. I'm making real money now, you yeah. know, and doing some some good work. And but he said, well, we'll get GE to do it. You know, so that's how I just fell into that. Just luck. Wow. Just because I know all those guys, you know. Yeah. Well, I remember being a kid and watching Saturday Night Live and uh, seeing you and T-Bone and every commercial break and bumper, all the cool blue shit you were playing. And, you know, it was a, it was a complete. It was it was just different because everything I was exposed to at that time. I mean, I came up in the '80s, a kid, you know. So I I was, you know, into Eddie Van Halen and stuff, and to see you with the old tellies and you know playing the old shit with the great rhythm section, T Bone with the bass, oh, it was so cool, you know. T Bone, I miss him. I know. I want to talk about T Bone too, man. He's he was he was the greatest. He was he was such an incredible musician, and uh, I mean, you know, I, I'm a I was a bar band guy, you know, so I had played many, many, many years in, in the bars when, from the time I was about 11, I started playing in bars and all up through the years. So I knew a lot of songs and I think that's what always worked for me when I would get like a gig with Daryl and John, I knew all the Delphonics and the Dells and, and the Temptations and Chi Lights and Smokey Robinson. I knew those songs. You know, and they knew those songs. Well, that's Daryl's baby food right there. You, you, that's, they yeah. knew those songs, man. So, 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 not only like did I know the songs, I, I knew those chords. I knew that style. I knew, you know, the all that yeah. stuff. Those piano chords that that Daryl loved to play. So I fit in uh, uh, well with that. But T Bone, when he came on. The, almost the first thing he did is the video for Private Eyes. And if you go look at that video, he is terrified. He didn't play on Private Eyes. That's John Siegler playing bass mm -hmm. on Private Eyes. But then, then we hired T-Bone, and uh, he did that video. And he's terrified. He can barely move. It's hysterical. Because later on, you know, he got, when he, once he got calm and, and, and acclimated to things, he moved like crazy. Yeah. T-Bone's College of Musical Knowledge. But anyway, <laughs> he came on and he knew more songs than I knew. You know, he was really the first guy I met that, that knew more. And he could play them on any instrument. That's, you know, he was uh, the wow. New York State accordion champion when he was like 11, 12. 
So he's, he's, he was a massively great keyboard player, a, an incredible guitar player. We, we had a band that, that, that we did with some other friend of ours, Domino Band, and me and T-Bone played guitar, both of us. And it was great, so much fun, you know? And uh, obviously the best bass player. Yeah. And then one night we were, we were producing a session and I think we were an electric lady. And the, the drum part was like a New Orleans, like a little second line mm -hmm. kind of feel almost, you know. And a really good drummer who could play anything couldn't quite get it, mm -hmm. you know. And, and we're saying, well, like, it's this. And, you know, and he, he was playing it, but it just didn't have the feel. So T-Bone sits down at the drums. And I start thinking to myself, don't do this to me. You play every other instrument better than anybody <laughs> Don't do this. And he goes, whack it, the boom, the oh, back, man, boom, lay it down. Back, it. And I had never seen him play drums. And I knew him, man. I knew him good, you know? So he was he was the greatest. And funny. I'm sure you've heard many, many stories. I have and I, my one regret is I never got to meet him, man. I um we I was playing with the Neville brothers. We played the Superdome in Demian Parade. This is a long time ago, and Daryl and John were there. And Right, that's how I know you. I saw you play with the Neville brothers. Yeah, I was there. I was with them from 90, late 96 through, I don't know. I was there probably eight, nine years. But I remember John, Daryl wasn't hanging out. There was a common green room, basically. And, you know, everybody's hanging, drinking and hanging out. And T-Bone was there talking to Art Neville. And I think George Porter was there for a minute, too. And yeah. I walked away, and I just never went in. I never said, man, he was three feet from me. And I remember later that night, I stood on side the stage, and I was going, holy shit, man, I forgot these songs. Wow, this, and the band was grooving so hard. And that was it. I never got to meet him. You know, I know so many people that knew him and worked with him. And He's um, the nicest guy. Yeah, I, nice I don't think guy. I've ever heard one. I've only heard great things about T-Bone out of all the people, yeah. I, you know. But... No bad things. I'll tell you one more great story sure. about Timo. You know, I'm sure you heard about how he was really into food. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, so after things got like very successful, we're going to go out to do another big, you, you know, United States tour in the bus. So so we get our own bus outfitted. So T-Bone has a, like a, a little grill built <laughs> to it, right? couple of burners and a, and a grill, a flat, you know, metal grill. And we get a, a, a freezer down in one of the bays. <laughs> so we take and we've got steaks and lobster and, you know, all kind of great right. food. Not, we always had great food in that band, I got to say. You know, we always, we always ate very well. So anyway, T-Bone for a while would do this thing in the morning as everybody starts waking up in the bunks. He had a, a little like a white apron, <laughs> a order pad, and he'd come up to the books and say, light toast, no butter. <laughs> and he'd make breakfast, you know. Wow. Uh, but so one time we're pulling into Kansas City and we want to go to this particular Bryant's barbecue, I believe it was called, Bryant's. And... This is, you know, before Internet. We don't have Estelle on our phone with the map telling us where to go, you know. Yeah. We're guessing. We know it's kind of over there. As you pull into Kansas City, we know it's off on the right somewhere. So we get off the exit, and we're in a bus. And we're going along, 
and he's got the little window in the door in the you know the inside outside door he's got the little window open he's like got his nose stuck out like a dog <laughs> going go about three blocks and turn right 10 minutes later man we're in front of the place <laughs> He could smell the barbecue. That's unreal. The guy was, the guy was <laughs> classic. Wow, what a character. Man. Yeah, that's that those are great stories. I never heard that one. I've heard the the salami, sacrificial salami and the yeah, those stories, but Yeah. So getting back to SNL, you and T Bone were there and was that like a real high pressure thing for you? Come I mean it it seems like with time working TV and things, was that the first MD, the TV thing that you had done at that point? I know you had been music director on other things, but as far as a weekly thing like that, being under pressure, timing and. Yeah, no, I had done another show for Lorne. Uh, you know, Saturday Night Live, of course, has always been on NBC, but he did a show for a minute called The New Show on CBS and I was the band leader, music director guy for that. So I had done a little bit of TV and of course I'd been on a lot of shows with Daryl and John and other people, you know, bandstand and soul train and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, so I was pretty well acclimated to playing in front of the camera and you know, as long as I got a guitar in my hand, I'm fine. Yeah. That's why I have a guitar now, even just to talk to you. Like people say to me, man, don't you get nervous when you get up there in front of 60,000 people and you got to play? I said, no, that's the only time I'm not nervous. Mm -hmm. I can understand I, that. Sure. Guitar, right? I bet yeah. you can. Yeah. Put on that guitar. I'm fine. I can talk to everybody. It's the rest of the time when I don't have the guitar. Then I'm nervous. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah. I had auditioned for Saturday Night Live about 10 years ago. I, uh, I, Lenny Pickett, well, Sean Pelton had initially referred me, and Lenny flew me out twice. And they, they were down to two guys, me and the guy that's doing it now. <laughs> so I didn't uh -huh. get the gig. I guess Lauren didn't like me. But at one point, I think I almost had the gig because we played at SIR a few times, and it would, yeah. we already discussed the money and everything. And I thought – but. Um, yeah, that was a that was a bummer for me, man. That was a dream gig, you know. But um, it's a great gig, but the, but it also keeps you there in New York, you yeah. know. So you can't go out on the road with somebody. Although I did, you know, I went out with Bob Dylan while I was. There's a whole another segment of the interview. Yeah. yeah, Dylan. And Bob was was very cool about it. You know, there's only 20 – or there used to be – anyway, when I was there, there was 20 Saturday Night Lives from October to, like, the end of May. It's kind of a school year, you know? And so those Saturday nights, Bob just didn't take a gig, although it made for some very interesting uh, airplane stuff, like, because this really happened. On Friday night with Bob, we played in Rio de Janeiro – Saturday night, I did the show, oh, and on Sunday night, it's Sao Paulo. And wow! And then went to Paris, and we did four nights or five nights in Paris. And I came home and did the show, and then I went to London and met back up with the band, and we did four or five nights in London. Oh, wow! That that was a crazy couple of weeks. 
Sounds like it. Man, you must have been just completely disoriented. That's Yeah, but it was fun. It was amazing. Yeah. No complaints, you know? Wow. I was so lucky to get to do all that stuff. Man. The best thing on Saturday Night Live was after the show had gotten very successful again by about like 88. I came on in 85. By about 88, I went to, to Lauren and said, listen, man, we're doing these what they call band shots, you know, the, the bumper things. And if there's a good guitar player in town, I'm going to invite him to come on and just play the night with the band. But don't, don't announce it. Don't put it in TV guy. Don't tell anybody. So the camera would come up on us and there's Johnny winner or yeah. Lonnie Mack oh, or yeah. David Moore or, or Eddie Van, Van Halen, <laughs> yeah. John, uh, all those people, you know, and that got to kind of be a little thing. And guys like Kirk, uh, Kirk Hammett from, from Metallica told me one time, he said, yeah, man, I just, we would watch to see, like, A, what guitar is he playing this week? And yeah. B, who's going to be playing? I know that you were, you were married to Gilda Radner, but were you particularly close to any cast members hang out with, anybody that you'd hang uh, I knew Belushi pretty well. Um, you know, uh, I, I knew them all, you know. Sure, yeah, obviously. Uh, Lorraine Newman, I was, I was very friendly with uh, for a while there because she lived right down the street from me and Gilda and uh, in the city. Uh, Billy Murray, I, I still, when I see Bill, we, we still have good talks. And he's a great guy. He's a very intelligent you know, I mean, he's funny. He does all that goofy character and stuff. But that's a very intelligent, very well-read guy. He knows what's going on, you know. But, yeah, they were they were great people. And it was a very exciting time, those first five years. You know, oh, that was a heyday, man. That was the something brand new, you know. You know what people don't realize? Chevy Chase was only on for one year. Really? 70, 76. That's it. I didn't realize one, that. And then he went to Hollywood. See, he... He established that that mold of you get on the show for a couple of years and then you go to Hollywood and get the real money, you know, which is what they most of them strive for. Well, I didn't realize that one year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Chevy was there for one year. Yeah. Every couple of months, man, I think it's from guitar playing, but I sleep and I twist my neck and it's just like, yeah. so if I'm doing this, it's it's just because I'm. I can't even turn like this right now. Come on. Years and years and years with that weight around your neck yeah. and your hands up in the air. I know. Uh, when, I, when I played with Roger Waters in, from 2010 for about six years, I played bass on a lot of the show. Right, right. So to all of a sudden now be extending my hand out further, I'm still sore. I did something to my back and my shoulder, you know. Mm -hmm. Because you get used to one thing, and the bass is heavier, and but that extending my arm out further, really. What 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 trips me out is I watch bass players that adapt their upright technique, you know this, right. and they play right. and they play like that, and I'm going, yeah. well, it's sort of like you don't really need to do that anymore. It's really bad for your wrist. It's kind of like traditional grip, like right. It's kind of you're not playing a marching snare angled anymore. I don't understand why, but. I don't know. I'm not a drummer, but it seems like it's really bad for your wrists. Um, you know, T-Bone, 
always he when I first met him, he was just playing with his fingers. He had always just played with his fingers. Very James Jamerson. You know, he was very influenced by Jamerson. Uh, then as we started going on the road and playing uh, big arenas, you know, 19,000 to 25,000 kind of seat places. Right away, he realized that he wasn't getting the clarity he wanted. So he went to a pick. Mm-hmm. And that really became his sound. Did you play with a pick with Roger Waters? On bass? Uh, only on one song. I played Fingers for most of the songs, but there was, there was one song that I had to play with a pick. Yeah, I mean, I, I know I played bass, uh, a little bass myself, and I, I noticed some uh, bass players that are real bass players they sort of frown on on pick you know they they think it's sort of cheating yeah. but man what about uh anthony jackson and what about carol yeah. k they're not cheating yeah. i mean exactly <laughs> so you're gonna tell them they're they're not Whatever bass players you do to get the tone. <laughs> i gotta say t-bone realized right away after like three or four nights in one of those big arenas that it, that he wasn't getting the clarity he yeah. could get in the studio right or on a, on a small stage you know and he adapted right away to that and i remember uh, when when they recorded one on one, I remember T Bone played the bass, fantastic bass part, yeah, right? amazing bass part. Bass, and he stood in the control room, just stood at the board, plugged right into the board. And I remember watching his right hand with that pick, that doom, 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 doom. wow, doom. the clarity of the notes, but still bottom. Boom, big, low. And, and I remember me and Daryl and, and John, and I remember Daryl just watching him like, wow, I love you, man. This is what you're playing. That's what we want right there. That's Great an amazing bass line. Yeah. and beautiful. Yeah. Do you remember a song called uh, Bank on Your Love? Mm. No. I don't remember that I'm one. I'm pretty sure you're on that record. Um, Bank on your love. See. Which record is that on, you know? Let me see if I can find it real quick on iTunes. Uh, I think the first record I was on was Ecstatic, I think. Or there might have been one before that. Bank on your love. Private Eyes. It's on Big Bamboom. It's on Big Bamboom, then, yeah. I yeah, was there. Yeah, I thought so, yeah. yeah. We did that yeah. song with... Uh, Billy Gibbons was a guest on, on Live from yeah. Daryl's House, and we did that song, which is kind of an odd choice, but Billy wanted to do it. And really cool part, man. It's got like a half-step bend from the major seven. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I learned all your parts on there. It was really what? neat. I mean, that, that, whole, that, that whole sound of that whole New York, that big, what was yep. it, hit factory, you can hear the room, and it's like... Yep. There's a clip on MTV uh, on YouTube of I think it was an MTV interview because I asked John about it, and it shows you and T Bone and Mickey cutting rhythm tracks for Go Solo, and yeah. Daryl's laying a vocal part and he they're, he said after that they were faking mixing just for the, right. the MTV video but man it, that's a, a, a just a cool time machine snapshot of what's it what it must have been you know I I don't yeah. know I just fantasize no, about great. being around yeah. then. Solo is such a great song. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Daryl just singing his heart out. Bob Dylan stories? Bob, when I I got that gig, I went, before we started uh, 
we, we went out to California and rehearsed just a little bit and then right away started doing shows. But I, I got out all my old photographs and stuff of like Mike Bloomfield and Robbie Robertson. And in almost every picture, they're stage right, off to Bob's right, and they are turned like looking across stage, watching his hands. Every picture that you see of them, <laughs> they're watching his hands. And uh, you had to, I, I talked to Mike Campbell from, from Petty for, for a minute, from the Heartbreakers, another great guitar player in a sure. great band. Oh, yeah. But um, uh, I talked to him about that, and he said, yeah, you know, just, you just watch his hands. Bob, and who knows why, but yeah, he did like to change things up. Um, not necessarily a different key all the time, but a different feel. Like you do a song in, in four one night, and the next night it might be in three, you know? Same song. But Tennessee Waltz in 4-4. Four, four. <laughs> Tennessee Waltz in 4-4. Four, four. I think we did do that, you know? Um, but it, it was great. I, I love doing that. I've always loved doing that. That seat of the pants thing, I think that, that a, for a guitar player, backing a singer, you play some of your best stuff. When, when that's happened, when you barely know the song, that's great. I love that. Yeah. So I had, a, I had a great time with Bob. Um, I mean, hey, he's Bob Dylan, you know? Oh, I, I'm I still know. amazed by him. Have you listened to his new record? The new one? No, I haven't listened to it yet. I should check it out. I mean, look, he's he's a older fella now, you know? And so he's he's adjusted his voice. He knows exactly what he's doing. The lyrics are unbelievable. Of course, yeah. Uh, he's the greatest. When I first got on there, and and we were out on the road, and and Bob worked. I mean, we worked. We played many many nights a week. You know, he didn't care. He just keep playing, just keep moving. That that that's what he seemed to like. But like for the first year, almost. I mean, we would talk. He 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 wasn't unpleasant. But we weren't like buddies or something, you know? Yeah. And and then almost exactly a year, we're coming off stage at a state fair somewhere in the Midwest. Iowa, maybe Iowa State Fair. And he had a bus, the band had a bus, and the crew had a bus. We had three buses. We're coming off stage, and I'm heading for my bus, and I feel his hand on my shoulder behind me. And I turn <laughs> around, and he goes, hey, ride with me tonight. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so i get on on his bus and we're headed for wherever the next place was headed for another joint as he says and um he he played cassettes in those days he's playing me songs not his songs old stuff you ever hear this one you know about this guy this you should know and he's turning me on and he's giving me cassettes listen to this learn this not to play just that I should know this. Yeah. You know? And that was great, man. Yeah, what that's an priceless, man. Wow. What an One of the amazing things he played me that night, he played me, he had a live tape of Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps from like maybe 57 or something. He says, now listen to this. And it's explosive rock and roll. Just and, and I'm listening to it and the guitars are ripping, you know. And he said, who do you think that is? I said, it sounds like The Clash. And he goes, yeah, it's Gene Vincent. Yeah, it really sounded like The Clash. Before CBGBs, man. 
way before Siege. <laughs> way before Clash. Those guys probably were barely born yeah. at that point. They were yeah. amazing live, man. The Clash live, one of the best bands I ever saw. Amazing. The the Who, the Stones, and the Clash. Brings up this thing, G. I want to ask you because I <clears throat> I checked out a few of your interviews, which are great, by the way. The little on YouTube, mm. and <clears throat> you said something that I think is relative to what we're talking about. I mean, you said that you wanted to be remembered, like if somebody goes, you know, years from now and they find some, uh, like I don't, I forget what you said exactly, but basically to paraphrase it, hundred years from now, somebody comes and and they download something in their brain and go wow look at these guys hanging out that's what you said these guys hanging out in new york in the 80s like in the studio taking a smoke break and these were the cats i believe is what you said and you're talking about gene vincent and dylan and here we are now i mean do you think there are any more cats i mean do you think there? you know I, I think about the state of music today not to be a downer i just mean do you think there's a need for quote cats or is just I don't know if I'm phrasing my question. Yeah, yeah you're but. phrasing it. I get it. Um, what's that Paul Simon line? Every generation sends a hero up the pop charts. That's a good answer. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's true. But I never wanted to be that guy. You know, I never wanted to be the, the front man guy. I wanted to be a side man. I, I was very lucky. I got to do what I wanted to do. You know, like, like along the way, I've several times been kind of forced to do my own, like a solo record or something, you know, in 1980 was, was the first one, but my heart wasn't in it because that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to, to play with these great singers, you know, to play behind Daryl and, and, and play behind David Bowie and, and Bob and whoever, you know. So I was very lucky to get to do some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and just, just the cats. Yeah, that's what I wanted. Yeah. I'd look at the, the bands from the '30s and stuff. You know, Charlie Christian and Ben Webster hanging out. You know, those, those guys. And I go, yeah, that's that's what I want to be. Yeah, I guess it's hard to to have objectivity when you're sitting in 2020. I I was working with Dr. John on his his record, and um, I found an old uh, video of him wrecking crew. 1966 Sonny and Cher session on YouTube and I just happened to be checking it out to look you know I was like wow this is gold star man where they're probably doing Brian probably pet sounds right now they're working on this on a different day and here's Sonny and Cher session they pan the room and you see Barney Kessel you see uh Jim Gordon on vibes Earl Palmer and there's Max smoking a cigarette playing at 335 and you know I showed it to him and he was just like yeah, yeah, that was me. Uh huh. What about it? And I'm just thinking, it's just another day. But I was just like, man, it just blows my mind because to me, those you know, those were the L.A. cats, you know, and, cats. and you were the New York cats. I mean, who are the cats now? I don't know. I don't know if there's even a need. There are. You know, I mean, it's different now. You know, I think that 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 the real cats now are probably in the in the kind of hip hop R and B world. Right. Right. And and they're working on computers. Yeah. They're not necessarily, you know, playing an instrument. I have one of those pictures like you're talking about in Los Angeles. James Burton, Glenn Campbell, Howard Roberts, and Tommy Tesco. All four of them sitting there with, with, with guitars. 
I'll tell you a funny story like that, man. One of the first New York City session dates I ever got before Daryl and John, anything, when I had first come to the, to the city to live in 78, uh, I get a call and there was a guy named Rex Smith. He was a soap opera star at the time and he's doing a record. So I get to the session the first day and it's Jeff Baxter and Huey McCracken and me on guitars, right? So uh, I'm terrified. I'm terrified anyway, because I haven't done many sessions, you know? And here's Jeff Baxter, who I'm in awe of from the Steely Dan stuff, you know? And Hugh McCracken, who's who's played on... He played on, on Mac stuff, yeah, on Dr. Johnston. And he's yeah. ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So... We're kind of looking at each other, and Huey, who, who was just the nicest guy in the world, he goes, all right. He says, I'm going to play acoustic. He says, Jeff, you play the top three strings. Gee, you play the bottom three strings. And we pretty much did the whole record like that. It was just, you know, it was fine. Uh, the record never did anything. I don't even remember, you know, much. I'll tell you another story like that. This is, this is great. There's a thing called the Rhythm and Blues Foundation that was set up by like Ruth Brown and Bonnie Raitt, I think, and people like that yeah. to help these performers when they get older and maybe they're sick and they're not able to work anymore, you know, help, help get them some money. So they always did that. It was a Los Angeles thing. They always did it in Los Angeles. But one year, for some reason, they bring it to New York and they're doing it in New York. And so they hire me to be the MD on the thing. And it's myself, Steve Cropper and Ry Cooter. Wow. on guitar so again i'm terrified right but they're great guys and i had actually worked with with cropper some with dylan so i was okay with him knew him and uh i, I was just you know honored to meet rye rye's rye changed my life his his playing you know everything mandolin i started playing oh. mandolin because of him uh but anyway so worth the thing and the finale of the show is little richard okay now, Little Richard, he doesn't rehearse. You know, you don't rehearse with Little Richard. He, he talks to you for a minute, and then you go play. So Richard comes right at the end of the rehearsal, about an hour before the actual show, you know, and he sits at the piano, and he goes, all right, and he looks. He goes, guitar players, come here. And he starts playing the lick from Lucille, you know. With his left hand just banging it man just killing it rhythm sound every killing it and he goes play that and cooter goes you want all three of us to play that he goes yeah play that and don't play nothing else <laughs> like go away i'm done with you guys go away don't play nothing else and we did it's hysterical. Wow. Stuff like that, that's like the cats, you know. Oh, yeah, man. Absolutely. But Cooter, I've never gotten to meet him, man. He seems like a pretty intimidating cat. But um, He, I don't know, you know, like I don't know him well or anything. I've met him a couple times. I got to, at that thing, uh, I took him to lunch, you know, which was really great. Just to get to ask him some questions. Because his first whole bunch of first out you know five or six first albums and then other stuff too that he's done they're just so good and changed my life 
his first record, Rock Hooter, where he's standing in front of the Airstream. Oh, he's yeah. He's got the yeah. cape. That's his first record. And Little Feet, first album. Both came out. They were both on Warner Brothers, and they both came out like early in 71. In my memory, like within about a month of each other. And those two records, man, I got those records and just played them over and over. I still play at shows when I when I perform. I still do the, the cooter stuff like. Uh, I remember Lindley laughing at me when I played him that. And he said, man, he plays it in an open D tuning. He said, you play it in C. Yeah, you got the melody, but. You know, uh, but yeah, those records changed my life. Uh, Lowell George is playing. What's funny is that is all those cats came from, well, not all of them, but Lowell and Rye. They, Rye was, I guess, came up with blues, but he was in Beefheart's band. <laughs> and then, and then Lowell was in Zappa's band. And I knew Richie Hayward Lowell. pretty well. He, he I saw to... Lowell in Zappa's band. Oh, wow. I didn't know it was Lowell at the time because the, we used to go see the mothers at the Fillmore East. Oh. In like 67, 68, the Anderson Theater, which was right across the street from the Fillmore, up 2nd Avenue a little bit. We saw the mothers there. We'd come in from Pennsylvania, you know. Uh, but yeah, Lowell, amazing ride. I know, amazing. man. I hear those guys and I go, wait, they're from California? Like, man, not that California doesn't have soul, but that's some deep shit, man. Like you hear. Kudos yeah. from Santa Monica yeah. and Lowell was from Mulholland Drive. Yeah. I mean, he was like a, <laughs> he wasn't from some poor family, you know, yeah. he was from family that, that was happening. Yeah. But man, you you just can't can't beat that stuff. Eh? Yeah, feel. Come on. Come on. You know? It's just playing the G scale, but hey, yeah. It's how you play it. And yeah, put you it together. try and write it exactly. Yeah, it's, it's yeah you write it, man. And his singing, <laughs> Lowell singing. You ever hear his solo album? Yeah. Thanks, Thanks did all you did here, of course. That song, Twenty Million Things. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. I remember man. I played that song for for Daryl one time. We were like in a van or something, and I always had a boombox, you know, back then. And I played Twenty Million Things for him, and he just kind of like, just kind of shook his head, like, yeah, damn. That's something. I played Daryl some Beefheart. He lo- he loved it. He goes, man, I used to. I had Trout Mask Replica. We used to listen to this all the time. Yeah, yeah. He's into some pretty, pretty out stuff. Man. Yeah, no, like some sideways stuff. Yeah, prog, progressive rock. And- yeah.
keep you that much longer, but I want to talk. In this, why don't we talk about your new project you have coming out? G Leroy Bell. Leroy Bell. It says it's Stony out in Hill. August. Stony Hill is the, is what we call the band. Okay. And um, yeah, Leroy is a really good songwriter and a great singer. I've been looking for a a singer for thirty years. <laughs> somebody that I could have a band with, you know, and I could never quite find the right person, you know, male, female, I didn't care, just, I needed just the right person, and Leroy is that person. Plus, fortunately, he writes these really great songs. So uh, my wife, Taylor Barton, uh, had been listening to him for a while, and in January of 2019, she said to me, listen, she was playing one particular song. And she said, listen to this guy's voice. This is the way you play. You know, like, so we invited him to come here, just blind, you know, cold call. Wow. And he came to the house and we got together and just had a great time. And within a couple of days, we were in the studio. So, yeah, we made this record. We got really lucky and got a deal uh, for old guys to get a deal. Ain't easy. For anybody got, to get a deal, man. <clears throat> yeah. We got, yeah, it's hard. I mean, it helps if you're an 18-year-old pretty girl, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we're not. And uh, but, but anyway, we got a deal on BMG. We made this record, and we have this song right now out called America. And if you look on YouTube and look at that video of America, anybody who's listening to, to, to me and Shane talking here, please take a minute and check out that video. I think that Leroy wrote a song in 2019. We had no way of knowing that the virus and George Floyd and all this stuff was going to come along. But he wrote a song that is perfect for these times. Sort of prophetic, yeah. Sort of prophetic. and uh, But it's a good song. I did check out the video. Yeah, so everybody check it out. And I'll put a link to it. And um but nice. yeah, man, that's a I'd look forward to hearing the whole record. That's yeah, there's two songs out now, America and Black is the Color. And it's funny, Black is the Color is an old uh traditional, you know, uh Kentucky song from Kentucky. And uh usually played like Nina Simone did a great version of it back in the sixties. Uh, usually played very slowly with a beautiful melody. Joan Baez did it, uh, different people. But I always heard it, I wanted to rock it up, you know? So <laughs> we, do, we do the rock version. And Roy sings it great. He just sings it. And, of course, with a black man singing it, it's a different thing. I always thought that that song was a white guy who's in love with a black girl hmm. in the 1800s, right? 
So he can't be upfront about it. They can't be seen together. And I'm like, black is the color of my true love's hair. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not what it's about. But to me, that's what it was about. Mm -hmm. So I always sang it, thinking that and did it this like rocked up version. And I got to play some uh, some Albert King wicks on it. Which <laughs> that's always good. <laughs> almost fun. Uh, I, I, I did almost this whole record with. Uh, I have a 1962 Epiphone Sheraton, which is just a magical guitar. And I've had other Sheratons. I've had other 62s that were great, but this one's magic. I got it about 10 years ago now. It was on the bay. I saw it on the bay. I knew from the photo that it was stuff, you know, so I got that. Most of it is that guitar and uh, a couple of Telecasters and a Jazzmaster. And almost the whole record is a tweed fender harvard amp yeah. from like 59 or 60 i think just a killer little amp you know that's the amp famously that cropper used yeah you know yeah there's two versions of the harvard slightly different preamp tube one of them is kind of creamy snouty like a tweed deluxe kind of sound and one of them is clean Cropper obviously had the clean one. I've got the creamy, snouty one, you know, but it's a slightly different preamp oh. section. And because uh, I've had both of them and uh, just a great amp. So, yeah, most of the record is that. And I got huge sounds. You'd think it was a Marshall. Yeah, man. That's one thing so I learned got, is recording with small. I, I use a little champ to record a lot of times. Sounds great. Yeah. Hey, Layla, right? Yeah, right, right. Layla is champs That's and right. twin reverb. Yeah. Almost the whole record, you know. Sunshine in my eyes, birds sing lullabies. I can hear babies cry, mama's hands are getting tied. No progress over here. Set us back a hundred years No dreamers anymore Democracy is out the door God only knows how I miss those days She only knows how I miss the way we were America I appreciate your time, G. Great. You probably Fun talk all day about shit. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, man. So thanks so much for, uh, for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. What guitars are you playing these days? Well, <clears throat> I don't have any of my ones that I use with Daryl and John. I've got... That's right. Just tell me. What well, are they? Well, I use, uh, I use a Strat, but a guy down in Louisiana built it for me. There, I'll show you this cool guitar. I want to get your opinion on this. Hold on. I bought this guitar about five years ago. It's a 59330. Oh, man. But if you... <laughs> All right, if you're still with us, thanks for hanging in there. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, we just kept talking. <laughs> I had to cut it short at some point for this podcast, but just kept talking shop as guitar players do. Um, and uh, But anyway, check out GE's website, gesmith.com. New record, Stony Hill with Leroy Bell. Listening to another track right now. Killer, killer stuff. Um... If you'd like to follow me, I'm on Instagram. 
Guitar Nola. Uh, also, um, Facebook, Shane Terrio Music. Always love hearing from you. Love your comments. Stay safe out there. See you next time. I love my love and well she knows. I love